The sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 42. And again, because it is such a long Old Testament reading, we do not have a New Testament reading corresponding to it today. Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man, we are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood." They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And this, at this their hearts failed them, and they trembled to one another. 
saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land." As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their fathers saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it this morning. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are quite clear that Christians are to forgive others just as they have been forgiven by God in Christ Jesus. When Jesus taught His disciples how to pray, He instructed them to say, among other things, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Receiving daily forgiveness from God is linked in the Lord's prayer, therefore, to our willingness to forgive others. Jesus elaborated on this point after He concluded with this model prayer, saying, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These are strong words from our Savior. Now, please do not misunderstand. The context of the Lord's Prayer makes it clear that Jesus is referring to to daily forgiveness, or uh, the restoration of a right relationship with God, and not our initial justification when He teaches us to pray, saying, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It is Christians who are to pray this prayer. It is those who have already been forgiven by God's grace and to all eternity who are to pray it. Certainly we are justified, forgiven, and set apart as God's children, the moment that we trust in Christ, that forgiveness is not contingent upon anything at all. It is by God's free grace alone. But here, Jesus teaches His disciples how to pray daily. And just as we are to pray for daily bread, so too are we to pray for daily forgiveness. When we sin, even as Christians, we are to repent of it. We are to confess our sin to the Lord and ask for forgiveness so that we might be restored in our personal walk with Christ. This is the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here. Daily forgiveness, we might call it. Restorational forgiveness, perhaps, is another term that is helpful. And it is concerning this kind of forgiveness that Jesus warns, saying, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The point is this. It is a terrible sin, and it is an act of hypocrisy for a Christian to refuse to forgive. You can read for yourselves that powerful parable of the unforgiving servant found in Matthew 18, 21-35. Are you familiar with that parable? Look it up for yourself later today and read it. Matthew 18, 21-35. The servant in that parable had been forgiven so much, and yet he refused to forgive only a little of the one who was under his authority. Then his master summoned him and said to him, this is the conclusion of the parable, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you, I do not, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. And so the one who is in Christ has been forgiven so much by God. If you do not realize this, then you need to reflect more deeply upon the law of God so that you might see your sin more clearly. We have been forgiven so much by God. How then could we possibly withhold forgiveness from others? That is the question that I am pressing upon you this morning. How could we possibly withhold forgiveness from others? The Christian is to forgive from the heart, Jesus says, just as they have been forgiven by God. The teaching of Scripture is so clear on this point that I doubt any of you will disagree with what has just been said. You might respond saying, but this is so hard to do. And I would agree with you about that. Sometimes forgiving others is, is hard. Our pride can get in the way. Our heart can grow hard like stone and bitter towards others if we are not careful to keep it. But no one can argue against the idea that Christians are called to forgive others from the heart. However, I have found that great confusion exists concerning the practical application of this clear teaching of Scripture. Christians are to forgive from the heart, but the question is how? How is that to be done? When are we to do it? And what is this forgiveness to look like when it is finally transacted? I am afraid that some have approached this subject in a very simplistic manner, assuming that the biblical command to forgive others means that forgiveness must always be transacted immediately, and with the end result being a fully restored relationship with the other, no matter the disposition of the offending party. This, brothers and sisters, I think is naive, and it is not biblical. I would like to state the biblical position very succinctly when it comes to forgiveness and the transaction of forgiveness. I want to state it succinctly in three points so that we can turn our attention again to Genesis 42, where I see these principles of forgiveness played out in the life of Joseph. One, the Christian must always keep their heart free from bitterness and unforgiveness, so that they stand ready and willing to forgive should true repentance be expressed by the offending party. And if, we, and if and when we transact forgiveness, when we come to say the words, I forgive you, we are to do so from the heart, as Matthew 18.35 says. The Christian must 
keep the heart, therefore. We must forgive in the heart, even before there is repentance expressed by the offending party. Two, forgiveness can only be transacted where there is repentance. Please notice that this is how God Himself deals with us. We are not forgiven by Him until we turn from our sin and look to Jesus the Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That process of turning from sin and believing upon Christ is called repentance. God stands ready and willing to forgive the sinner, but forgiveness is not transacted until there is true repentance. And so it is with us. Forgiveness, uh, though it may have already been prepared in our hearts, can only be transacted where there is repentance in the offending party, repentance in the other. The offender must say to the offended, I'm sorry for what I have done to you. I have sinned against God in this way. Please forgive me. And it is then that the Christian is to take the forgiveness that has been prepared in the heart and is to give it to the other, saying, I forgive you, brother or sister, husband or wife, mother or father, son or daughter, friend. I forgive you. It is then upon repentance that that forgiveness that is already in the heart is to be transacted. It was this question from Peter which prompted the parable of the unforgiving servant that I mentioned just a moment ago. Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. I love Peter. Don't you love Peter? He probably thought he was being very pious, very generous here. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Much more, Peter. But that is, of course, true. While that is, of course, true, I I am here pointing out the obvious thing, that the forgiveness can only be transacted those 77 times If repentance is expressed, forgiveness, transactional forgiveness, is contingent upon repentance. You might be thinking to yourself, well, what kind of relationship could possibly require forgiveness being transacted 77 times? I'm actually sure of it. My wife over here has forgiven me many more times than that in our 20 years of marriage. I'm sure of it. If we are really aware of our sin and our shortcomings, if we are really eager to repent, uh, 77 times uh, is nothing at all, especially when it comes to close relationships uh, over a long period of time. The point is this, forgiveness can only be transacted where there is repentance. And this helps us to know when and how we are to forgive when we have been sinned against. It also helps us to know what we should uh, do when we have sinned against another. We cannot just leave the matter alone and ignore it. We should learn uh, to go to the one we have offended and humbly ask their forgiveness. We should learn to do a very good job at this. We should learn to repent before God first and afterwards to look to the one we have offended. And We should look them in the eye and we should say, I know that I have sinned against you in this way. I know that it has hurt you. Please forgive me. And because the offended party is human and not divine, It may be necessary to give them a little space to process what you have said. It might be that they need to ask you follow-up questions. And then hopefully they will say to you, and they must if they are a Christian, from the heart I forgive you. Thirdly, 
Please understand that forgiving from the heart and even transacting forgiveness does not always mean that the relationship, whatever kind it is, will automatically go back to what it was before. For example, it is possible for a friend to forgive a friend truly and from the heart, but for the friendship to be less close than it was previously, given the damage done to the relationship. I think this is a very important point. To be honest with you, I'm a little nervous about making it, though, because I realize that it can be misused. Some might use what I have just said to justify bitterness and unforgiveness in the heart. But I've already warned against that. Here I am simply saying that in some rather extreme cases where significant damage has been done to a relationship as the result of some heinous sin, it is not required that things go back to what they previously were. It is possible, for example, for a wife to forgive her unfaithful husband from the heart and even to transact that forgiveness upon repentance, saying the words, I forgive you, but for the marriage bond to be dissolved. There is a reason why the Scriptures, why the scriptures make that exception for the issue of divorce, because some sins are greatly damaging and even heinous. These three principles that I have just stated, I think, are put on full display in the story of Joseph that runs from chapter 42 through to the end of Genesis. Uh, you know the story of uh, Joseph uh, well enough that I do not have to worry about spoiling it for you. At least I hope that is the case. Um, at the end of the day, Joseph will forgive his brothers for the terrible sins that they committed against him. He will eventually utter these words to them. And here I am skipping forward all the way to Genesis chapter 50, verses 20 through 21. He will eventually say this to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It is incredible that Joseph was able to say this to them, given all of the pain and the sorrow that they caused him. But he said it, and he meant it. He proved that he meant it by his actions. He made provision for his family in Egypt. Now, I don't know that he was the best of friends with his brothers. You kind of get the impression in the narrative that he was not. I really doubt that he was. But he did forgive them, and he showed them love and kindness. We see that clearly in the story. Today I want for you to notice that it was a process for Joseph to transact this forgiveness with his brothers. I do not doubt that Joseph desired to forgive them, that he had it in his heart to forgive them long before he actually did so. But notice this, it was a process to come to the point of transactional forgiveness. Notice here in this narrative that Joseph tested his brothers. He watched and waited to see if there was a change of heart in them. Remember that the last time he saw them, they were counting coins as the Ishmaelite traders took him away, bound to Egypt. As we begin to observe this process of forgiveness and reconciliation, I want for you to notice three things. One, Joseph was eager to forgive, but he was guarded at first. Two, Joseph was wise to test and to watch and wait and see if his brothers were indeed changed men. 
And three, Joseph kept his heart free from bitterness and unforgiveness all along the way. Notice, first of all, that Joseph was eager to forgive, but he was guarded. When Joseph first saw his brothers, he recognized them, but they did not recognize him. You might be thinking, well, how could that be? Well, it's really not difficult to imagine. One, Joseph was the youngest when he was sold into slavery. His appearance would have changed more with the passing of time than his brothers who were older than him. I I think uh, you change a lot from the age of 18, let's say, to the age of 28. You know, you change a little less as you get older. Maybe that's a part of it here. But two, Joseph would have undoubtedly been dressed in the garb of the Egyptians as his brothers stood before him. He was a young Hebrew shepherd boy the last time his brother saw him, but now he was royalty in Egypt. And three, while Joseph undoubtedly felt free to lock his gaze upon his brothers to examine their appearance closely, his brothers would not have dared to stare at him, for he was a powerful Egyptian official who spoke harshly with them from the outset. Notice that in verse 6 we read, And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. I doubt they ever looked him in the eyes during this whole encounter. Joseph recognized them, but they did not recognize him. And when we read these words that they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground, we should not forget the dreams that Joseph dreamed that provoked his brothers to envy all those years ago. And those dreams, the sun, moon, and stars, which represented his brothers, his father and mother, they bowed down before Joseph. So too the sheaves of wheat, which represented his family, bowed down before his sheave. Joseph must have wondered in those days how these dreams would ever come true. He must have especially wondered about the fulfillment of them when he was a servant in Potiphar's house and a slave in the prison. I'm sure there were some nights where he laid awake saying, Oh yeah, I remember those dreams that I had that one time. Their meaning was clear, but how will they ever come to fruition? How will they ever come to pass? But in this moment, he knew. His brothers had journeyed to Egypt seeking grain, And when they arrived, they bowed before Joseph in fulfillment to those dreams, though they knew it not. But what I want for you to see and what I want you to notice more than anything is that when Joseph recognized his brothers, uh, the ones who had treated him so badly all those years ago, even to the point of stealing his life away from him, he did not immediately run to them, reveal his identity to them and offer him his warm embrace. He did not do that. To the contrary, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But in verse 7 we read that he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Did Joseph sin when he treated his brothers in this way? Did he fail to forgive them from the heart? I don't think so. These men were wicked men in the past. For all Joseph knew, they were wicked men in the present. And given his position, it was right for Joseph to speak harshly with them, to question them, and to put them to the test. Do not be naive, brothers and sisters. Forgiving from the heart does not mean that you transact forgiveness immediately. Joseph didn't. And I think he was right in his approach. In verse 8 we read, And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, and they must have been panicked here, 
No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies, they said. Of the four things that the brothers said of themselves, three were true. One, it was true that they had come to buy food. Two, it was true that they were all sons of one man. In fact, there was even more truth to this statement than the brothers realized. As they spoke these words to Joseph, Joseph was also included in the plural we, but they did not realize it. We are all sons of one man. There was more truth in this statement than they realized. Three, it was also true that they were not spies. But the third of the four things that they said was not true. Notice that they claimed to be what? Honest men. We are honest men, they say. And this they were certainly not. They had sold their brother into slavery many years earlier. They had lied to their own father saying that he was dead. And this their father still believed to that present day. Brothers and sisters, I want for you to see that this is also how God deals with sinners as He leads them to true repentance. He does not at first speak kindly to them. He does not at first embrace them with His love. Instead, He speaks harshly to us, if we may use that word. He confronts us concerning our sin. He applies His law to show us that we have violated it in in thought, in word, and in deed. He convinces us that we deserve His judgment. This is how God deals with sinners as He brings them to that place of true repentance. Now, I am not saying that God only speaks harshly to the sinner when He calls him to repentance. He does also speak tenderly. After confronting with the law, He applies the gospel. After the harsh confrontation of our sin, He does also gently summon us to turn from it, to believe upon Christ and to follow after Him. But let us not overlook the fact that if we are to repent truly and believe upon Christ sincerely, we must be confronted with our sin. We must come to that place where we recognize that we have sinned against God Almighty. Furthermore, don't you see that sinners often respond to God in the same way that Joseph's brothers responded to him at first? They underestimated the severity of their sin and they overestimated their own goodness. We are honest men, Joseph's brothers said. Joseph knew otherwise. And those who remain unrepentant before God do the exact same thing. We are honest men, they say to God. We are good and generous men, they say. We are upstanding citizens, etc., etc. On and on they go. Underestimating the severity of their sin. Overestimating their own goodness. Certainly we are not spies. But this is not true repentance. But this is instead persistent pride and self-righteous behavior. Secondly, we see that Joseph was wise to test his brothers and to watch, wait, and see if they were indeed honest men, that is to say, changed men, as they now claimed. Notice that it was the claim that they were honest men that Joseph set his sights upon. The rest of the chapter makes this clear. In verse 19, Joseph said to them, If you are honest men, Let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain, so on and so forth. And so your words will be verified and you shall not die. 
In verse 31, Joseph's brothers retell the story to their father back home. And they say, but we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. In verse 33, they tell their father the agreement made with Joseph. Then the man, they did not know it was Joseph, the Lord of the land said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way, etc. And then again in verse 34, they quote Joseph again saying, bring your younger, youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. The word honest appears five times in Genesis 42. It appears once when the brothers claimed to be honest at first, and four times in regard to Joseph testing to see if it was really true of them. In the Hebrew, the word translated honest means to be upright or righteous, These brothers were not only claiming to be men who told the truth, but rather men upright, men of integrity. And this is what Joseph decided to put to the test. We know that Joseph was testing his brothers, for the text says so. Verse 15, by this you shall be tested, Joseph said. Verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh you are spies. Joseph did not tempt his brothers. His aim was to see if they were true. And it appears that he wanted to find them to be true and not false. In verse 18 he said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. There is this exhortation. He's pleading with them. I hope you follow through on this. I want for you to succeed. His desire was for them To live and not perish. This was testing. It was not temptation. Brothers and sisters, herein lies the difference between temptation and testing. Temptation has failure as its goal. Testing has success. Temptation aims to do harm. Testing aims to prove, to strengthen, and to refine. Satan tempts us, friends. God tests us so that our faith might be proven true and so that we might be strengthened and refined through the process. I hope that you were able to see the wisdom in Joseph's actions. These were not random decisions that he made. Joseph was not just playing games with his brothers to kind of needle them and to get even with them. He was testing them and he did so with much wisdom. Essentially what Joseph did, notice this, was recreate the scenario with his brothers which led to his being sold into slavery those many years ago. He recreated the same scenario. Joseph's desire was to see see his younger brother Benjamin, who was also the son of Rachel. They had that in common, the only two who came from Rachel. But in bringing that about, he recreated the scenario that unfolded those many years ago. Remember that Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt, and his brothers walked away from him counting the coins. And here they are forced to leave one of their brothers in bondage in Egypt as they walk away with provisions, with wealth, counting the coins. What will they do? Joseph said, send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there's truth in you after three days. In custody, his plan was refined a bit. In verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined. 
where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine to your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And it was upon hearing this that the brothers began to confess their sin to one another. They spoke in Hebrew and did not know that Joseph could understand them. And listen to what they say. They maybe for the first time confess that what they did to Joseph all those years ago was wrong, that it was sinful, that it was wicked. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They're referring, referring to Joseph. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Here we gain a little more insight into how it all went down those many years ago. Joseph did not go easily. He did not go willingly into Slavery. He begged his brothers that they would spare his life, and they did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us, they realized. How were they able to recognize this? Because they were watching the same scenario unfold before their eyes. They got the connection. All this distress has come upon us because of what we did those years ago. Reuben said, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? The word sin is used here. But you did not listen, he says. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Interesting that Reuben says this. I think he knew that he was sold into slavery, but in the Old Testament, uh, kidnapping is equated with murder. It's put on the same level. Perhaps that is what he is thinking here. Perhaps he was convinced that by now Joseph was dead. But again, notice the language used. They admitted their guilt. Reuben specifically called what they did to their brother sin. And they recognized the connection between what was happening to them now and what they did back in those days. This situation must have felt strangely familiar to them, and that was the point of it. Joseph, with wisdom, orchestrated the situation so that the brothers might be pressed with their actions all those years ago. They were leaving one of their brothers in bondage in Egypt and preparing to return to the comfort of their own home enriched. And of course, that was the point. Joseph sent them away. He even put money back into their sacks so that they might be tested in this way. Would they just stay at home and enjoy the food and keep the money for themselves and forget about their brother who is now in Egypt in bondage? Or would they return to rescue him out of the pit at a risk to themselves? What would they do? When they uttered those words of confession in verse 23, uh, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then Joseph turned away from them and he wept. We see here the tenderness that is still in Joseph's heart. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. He bound him before their eyes so that they might remember what they did to Joseph those many years ago. And he also gave these orders to fill their bags with grain and to put every man's money in its sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done to them. All of this was wise. All of this was meant to test to see if these men were all these years later actually honest men, upright men of integrity. I wonder, brothers and sisters... How is the Lord testing you today? How is He testing you? God does not tempt, but He does test His people. He does not tempt, but He tests His people. He tests us so that our faith might be proven true. 
He tests us to refine us and to strengthen us. And I am asking, how is the Lord testing you right now? My prayer for you is that you would be found to be honest and upright, sincere in the faith. The third and final point of the sermon today is that Joseph kept his heart from bitterness and unforgiveness. Now, I am not saying that Joseph was never bitter. Though the Genesis narrative never says so, I would not be surprised at all to find out that Joseph struggled greatly from time to time while in Potiphar's house and while in prison. There were probably nights where he cried himself to sleep. He probably felt anger towards his brothers. But it seems clear, this is clear in the narrative, Joseph did not allow the bitterness and unforgiveness to take root within his heart. Somehow, And I know how. It was through faith in God and through speaking truth to himself, the doctrine that he held dear. Somehow he managed to keep his heart. He tended to the garden of his soul. This is apparent given the way that he responded to his brothers when uh, when he saw them. He did not pour out his wrath. He could have. And I suppose that he would have been justified in doing so. Instead, He put them to the test, his desire being that they would prove themselves to be upright so that they might live. When they acknowledged their sin, he wept, showing that his heart was still tender towards his brothers and tender towards God. He wept. Joseph's heart was still soft even after all of those years of hard bondage. Brothers and sisters, may this be true of you and me. May our hearts be ever soft and pliable before the Lord. May our love for God and for one another always be sincere. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4, 31-32. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Father, help us in this. Help us to forgive as we have been forgiven. Lord, help us to fight against the pride that rises up within us. Help us to tend to the garden of our soul so that we might root out bitterness and unforgiveness wherever it is present. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. Make us more and more aware of how great it is. And Father, help us to see the hypocrisy that is present within us if we refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us. Lord, help us to forgive in the heart even before repentance is expressed. Help us to swallow the pride and to transact the forgiveness where there is true repentance. Father, we do trust that in this way, by doing this with one another in this congregation and in our homes and out in the world, that your love for us will be put on display. Father, help us not only to speak of Christ and the forgiveness of sins that is in Him, but to show it. This we pray in the name of Jesus and all of God's people say, Amen.